have you ever made this mistake? Uh, not recognising someone great, treating someone one way, but then finding out they were something completely different. Uh, Sir Edmund Hillary uh, was the first person to climb Mount Everest in the 1950s. He was well known around the world, honoured for his great achievement. Uh, a few years after he was knighted, he was back in the Himalayas for a photo shoot. He's dressed in his mountain gear. They've got him standing with a group of other mountaineers. And the photographer gives him an ice pick and asks him to hold it for the photo. At which point, there's another young climber who's passing by and he doesn't recognise Sir Edmund Hillary. And he, he comes over and he says to him, excuse me, that's not how you hold an ice pick. This is how you need to hold it. He doesn't realise who he's giving advice to. He underestimates him. He acts in one way when he... He really should have been lining up for an autograph and asking for lessons about how to do mountaineering. Now, uh, Hillary could have put him in his place. He could have said, young man, don't you know who I am? Could have, could have given him a lesson uh, on ice picks and pretty much everything else about mountaineering and could have left this young guy hugely embarrassed. Uh, but instead, he smiles, he thanks him, he, he lets him adjust the ice pick in his hand and then goes on with the photograph. And uh, according to the book I read this in, this, this shows his, uh, his widely recognised humility. But nevertheless, this climber was left looking foolish. He'd misjudged someone great. It's foolish to treat someone in one way when they're actually something completely different. It's the same thing that we've got in today's chapters with Pharaoh and the way he treats God. He, he underestimates God. He thinks he's just like the other gods, powerless, in charge of one small part of things, and so he behaves in one way. But he's got God completely wrong. He's misjudged someone great. And these chapters show that he's a fool. And so God is about to correct him. That's really the point of these plagues, uh, chapters 7 through to 11. It's God's lesson plan for teaching Pharaoh a lesson, to show him who God really is, to show him who's the boss. Pharaoh asks the question, the plagues are God's answer. Chapter 5, verse 2, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh, let my people go with the message, and look at Pharaoh's response, who is the Lord? I don't know him. I'm not going to let Israel go. He doesn't recognise him, and so, so he behaves in one way. He thinks God's one thing when he's something else altogether. And uh, we know the story. He, he uh, tells the slave drivers to stop giving straw, let them find their own straw. The people scatter looking for straw. Life becomes hard. Uh, so much for God's plan to rescue them. And so Moses wonders what God's doing. Uh, and in verse 22 of chapter 5, uh, he comes back to God with another question. Oh Lord, why? Why have you brought trouble on this, your people? Is this why you sent me? So that they can come and complain to me and, and you can make everything more difficult? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's brought trouble upon this people. You haven't rescued your people at all. You said you'd harden his heart. Yeah, you, you said he wouldn't let us go, but you didn't say he'd actually make things harder. What are you doing? That's Moses' question. Pharaoh's asking a question. Moses is asking a question. God's about to answer both of them. Chapter 6, verse 1. Firstly, he answers Moses' question. Why have you brought trouble 
Uh, and he says, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. That's why I've brought trouble. And then in verse 2, he answers Pharaoh's question. Who is Yahweh? Verse 2, God said to Moses, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai. But by my name, the Lord or Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they lived as aliens. I've heard the groaning of the Israelites. I've remembered my covenant. That's who I am in the past. And then verse 6, this is who I am in the future. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I'll free you from being slaves. I'll redeem you with an outstretched arm, with mighty acts of judgment. I'll take you as my own people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I am Yahweh, your God who brought you out. And he finishes that speech, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. That's who I am. That's what I'm going to do and that's why. That's a pretty thorough answer, isn't it? You think that would be enough for Moses? Well, if you've been following the story, you know it's not. It's not enough for Moses. Uh, He and the people are not convinced and they don't listen. Verse 9. So verse 11, God tells Moses to say it all to Pharaoh, and Moses comes back with question number three, chapter 6, verse 12. Moses said, If the Israelites won't listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? It's a question we're meant to keep asking, I think. We we then get uh, this big, long section of all the ancestors of Moses and Aaron. And I think as we read through it, we're meant to have this question in the back of our mind, why would Pharaoh listen to Moses? What's going to make Pharaoh listen to Moses? And I think that's part of the reason why that list there. I'm not quite sure why else. So we get to chapter 7, which Noah read for us, and God gives his answer to that question that's back there in verse 12. Why would Pharaoh listen? Well, here's why Pharaoh's going to listen. Tell Pharaoh, verse 2, to let the Israelites go out of his country, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Why would Pharaoh listen? By God's power and control. That's what's going to make Pharaoh listen. Uh, His control over Pharaoh, over the natural order, over Egypt. Pharaoh's asked the question, who is the Lord? God's going to give the answer, I'll show you who he is. Moses asked the question, why would Pharaoh listen? And God says, by my mighty hand. I'm the one who's made everything. I'm the God over it all. I'm I'm the God over the parts that the Egyptians think are controlled by their gods. I'm the God over Harpy, who controls the Nile. I'm the God over Osiris, who controls crops and the birth of children. I'm the God over Ra, the God of the sun. All the way through the plagues, we see what God's intention is. The goal of the lesson is that they would know. Chapter, seven, uh, chapter 6, verse 7 
Um, chapter 6, verse 7, uh, then you will know that I am the Lord your God. The verse before, then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. If we jump into chapter 8, verse 10, Moses gets Pharaoh. He says, I'll give you the honour of picking a time when the plague of frogs will stop. Like a magician who holds the cards out to the audience, you know, pick a card. It shows his power. Why is God doing it that way? So that you may know. Same again in verse 22. Flies who only affect the Egyptians, not the Jews. Why? So that you will know. Same again, chapter 9, verse 14. So that you may know. Chapter 9, verse 29. Thunder and rain stop when Moses prays. Why? So you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Chapter 10, verse 2. God hardens Pharaoh's heart so that you may know. And finally, chapter 11, verse 5. The death of the firstborn Egyptian children. But verse 7, not affecting the Israelites. Why? Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction. Again and again, through the ten different plagues, it's a lesson plan designed to teach Pharaoh who God is so that they would know it gets more intense, it gets more targeted as the plagues unfold. It covers the whole breadth of creation. Everything the Egyptians thought their gods ruled over. Water to land, tiny insects, large beasts, plants, animals, mankind. Plagues to do with the weather, sickness, to do with light and dark, even over life itself. Skim through the chapters with me. First, uh, we see water in the Nile becomes blood. Chapter 7, verse 14. It's putrid. No one can drink it. The court magicians can't fix it. Verse 22, all they can do is imitate it, which ironically just makes things worse. Uh, there's just more blood. It doesn't really help, does it? Same thing a week later. There's a plague of frogs. Chapter 8, they're everywhere. They're even in the palace. And verse 7, all the magicians can do is make more frogs. Not helpful, I can imagine Pharaoh saying. You're not helping. After the frogs, chapter 8, verse 16, Aaron strikes the dust and the dust becomes gnats. Maybe sand flies. Then verse 18, the magicians, but well, they can't duplicate that one. And they finally learned the lesson. They're in the advanced stream of this, uh, this classroom and they get it, they get it early. And they, they say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen. The magicians know. They've learned the lesson. They've learned who God is, but, but Pharaoh hasn't. And so the plagues continue. Uh, chapter 8, verse 20, next up, it's flies. Uh, and from this plague on, only the Egyptians are affected. Israel is protected. Just as God separates light and dark at creation and separates the water above from the water below, he, he separates the effect of his plagues so that the Egyptians are affected and his people are not. And the distinction, uh, chapter 8, verse 22, is so that you will know. Uh, God is the one who's at work. Then into chapter 9, a plague that kills all the Egyptian cattle only. And then chapter 9, verse 8, God starts to get personal. Moses throws soot from the brick kilns into the air. 
And when it settles on Egypt, man and animals break out in festering, painful boils. Chapter 9, verse 11 says the magicians couldn't stand before Moses because they were covered in boils. From what I can tell about boils, they probably couldn't sit down either. But still Pharaoh refuses to give in, refuses to recognise who God is. Then it's hail all over the land of the Egyptians. Chapter 9, verse 13, the crops that were just about ready for harvest, they were destroyed. But there was not one hailstorm, hailstone where Israel was. Because this is no ordinary hailstorm. This is an extraordinary, supernatural hailstorm. Then chapter 10, it's locusts. So many that the air is thick with them and the ground is black with them. And they finish off any crops that the hail left behind. God is running out of things to destroy. He's looking around, "Mm, what's next? Anything left? What else has he got up his sleeve? How much longer can Pharaoh hold out? How dumb is he? You can imagine Pharaoh peering out the curtains in fear of his uh, palace, hardly daring to imagine what's next. Well, it comes in verse 21, unannounced. Darkness. 100% complete blackness. So dark that no one could move from his house for three days. We're told it's darkness you could feel. Except somehow, verse 23, it wasn't dark where the Israelites lived. Darkness, that's just like Pharaoh's darkness. He was blind to God and so God literally leaves him in the dark. And just to prove that God's right, Pharaoh still won't let them go. When nine plagues in... It's swept across the whole of creation. God is showing Pharaoh the full extent of his power, but he hasn't quite finished. I want you to imagine for a moment the scene in Egypt. Egypt had been the jewel of Africa, the most powerful country of its time, lush, fertile, rich, the mighty Nile nourishing and flowing through it. Wealthy, well-fed, healthy Egyptians walking around, carefree and content. Plump, good-looking cattle, fields bursting with grain, ready for harvest. But imagine it now, nine plagues in. There's not a green plant left standing. Stubble, dusty ground, and the smell. Animals dead by hail or plague, rotting frogs piled up in heaps, People walking around gingerly, covered in boils, in a state of shock, perhaps squinting in the bright sunlight after three days of complete blackness. They're shell-shocked. They're they're, they're suffering from PTSD. It's destruction and chaos. It's a battlefield. It's a complete decreation from the hand of the Creator. Well, that's what happens when the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, comes to fight for you. It's what happens when someone dares to ask the question, who is the Lord? But God has one card left to play because his people still aren't free. And this one's different from the rest. This one's personal. It cuts right to the core of Pharaoh because Pharaoh has cut right to the core of God. God's already told us what's coming. Back in chapter 4, verse 22, when Pharaoh wouldn't let 
his people go, Moses was to say to him, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, you wouldn't let him go, I will kill your firstborn son. That's the plague that's coming, but you'll have to wait till next week to hear about that one. So let's stop here. Let's ask ourselves, have we learned a lesson? Have we learned the lesson God wants for us? Has God's purpose been achieved? So that you may know that he is Yahweh, that there's no one like him, that he is in the land, that the earth is Yahweh's. Do you know it? Can you see it? It's about as clear a lesson as anyone's ever going to get. But Pharaoh still didn't learn. So make sure you learn. But as spectacular as that lesson plan was for Pharaoh, he had an even clearer demonstration in mind. A more clear self-revelation centuries later when he sent his son, Jesus, the clear word from God, the clear demonstration. Hebrews 1 says, God has spoken to us by his son, who is the radiance of God's glory. Radiance. You can't look straight at the sun, but you can look at the the radiance around it. The sun, the exact representation of God's being. He's spoken by his son, so we would know him by his son. When you see Jesus, you're seeing God. When you know Jesus, you're knowing God. God has spoken. Do you know him? Pharaoh didn't see it. He didn't see God. Although interestingly, in some senses at least, in some ways, his advisors did. Do you remember uh, what they said? Chapter 8, verse 19, that the magicians can't reproduce the gnats. And they, they say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. It's an interesting expression. We, we see the arm of God in this chapter. We see the hand of God quite often. But there's only one other place in the Bible that talks about the finger of God. It's on Jesus' lips. He says it in chapter 11 of Luke. Uh, the section begins in verse 14. Jesus casts out a demon from a man who's mute, who can't speak. And he can speak again. And the crowd are amazed. But there are some people who are watching who misjudge Jesus, who misjudge someone great, like that mountaineer did with Sir Edmund Hillary, like Pharaoh did with God. And the crowd say to Jesus, By Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he casts out demons. They think Jesus' power has come from Satan himself. Well, Jesus says that's nonsense. A kingdom that fights against itself is useless, that's, that's foolish, it'll be ruined. And then he corrects them in verse 20. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. What he's saying is my demonstration of power over this mute demon is a demonstration of the finger of God. It's not Satan's power. It's the kingdom of God that's arriving. It's a kingdom that delivers people, that redeems them, that that brings them out of a slavery. I think that's why he's using that phrase. He wants us to be thinking back to the Exodus. He, He goes on to describe what his contest is like. 
In verse 21, he says, Satan, he's like a strong man. He's got a house. He's guarding it. That's the world or, or, or people. And then Jesus says, but if a stronger man comes, and that's Jesus, he will attack and overpower him and take off his possessions. That's what Satan's doing in the world. That's what the kingdom of God has done with Jesus. He's overpowering the forces of Satan and robbing his house and rescuing his people. It's what God was doing in Egypt, overpowering the forces of Egypt, robbing his house. And that's what Jesus was doing then. It's what Jesus is doing today. Can you see it? Do you know it? God is at work. He's powerful. He's at work robbing Satan's house and rescuing his people. Can you see it? Do you know it? But before you say yes too quickly, let me ask a deeper question. Does your behaviour reflect that you see and know it, that God is at work? Does your prayer life reflect the truth that, Jesus, that you're trusting that God is at work? Does your witnessing, does your speaking about Jesus reflect that? Do the priorities of your life reflect that? Or do you perhaps need a remedial lesson, a reminder? Have you perhaps unwittingly soaked up the post-Christian secular mindset of the age that trumpets that God is dead, that Christianity is out of date, that the church is fading and irrelevant, but instead that science and technology will fix all our problems. Has that perhaps spoken into your ear? That's the assertion of a great new book by Melbourne pastor and academic Mark Sayers. The book's called Reappearing Church. And he says, many Christians have internalised the secular map of reality that tells us not to expect dimensions of reality beyond the empirically evident, in other words, miraculous things. The world is saying miracles don't happen. Have Christians started to internalise that? That there are no longer any supernatural dimensions to reality? He says the solution is that we need to look at our moment through resurrection lenses. We must examine the possibilities of renewal through God's unlimited power rather than through the limitations of a post-Christian framework. He's really saying, let's listen to the Bible, let's not listen to the newspaper. We need to know and live out the truth that God is still powerful. He is Yahweh, there is no one like him. He is in the land. He is the God of the world. We need to know that his son Jesus is still storming Satan's stronghold and setting captives free by the finger of God. Do you know that? And are you living it out? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to see you and your son Jesus. Help us to see you at work, to trust you, to expect you to be at work in us, in our families, in our churches, in our neighbourhoods, in our country and in our world. For your honour and glory. Amen.